0: Some of you have been coming to Cambridge Insight for a long time or have been practicing with other groups. And you know, it's it's a, a real treasure to be able to gather and do what we don't seem to find the time to do, which is just to be reflective. And you probably remember, those of you who've done a little study, because it gets repeated a lot, um, the Buddhist teachings, and the Buddha, at, you know, at the time he was living and teaching, he really simplified it to the real issue at hand, which is there is this experience of suffering. Our heart, our mind feels burdened, certainly some of the time, if not a lot of the time. Of course, it's burdened in different ways, the particular texture of that psychic weight or whatever, however you experience, can be different, of course, between us. And he taught that there is this dukkha, this existential uneasiness, really regardless of our particular circumstances. You know, when we have really favorable circumstances, we may be temporarily forgetful that the heart is burdened, that it's difficult being a human being. But he just didn't teach that. <laughs> that would have been sort of grim. He also taught there's a release of that dukkha. And I remember uh, a long time ago meeting with a teacher and who also was a, a Buddhist scholar and just asking kind of the natural question, you know, is this work we do in meditation practice and just generally working with our mind, getting interested in the mind, which is what we tend to forget. I mean, we're so busy with the details of life, it's so easy to forget the space, the nature of the knowing mind, right here, right now, the experiencing. right? We're so in the details of trying to get or trying to get rid of. So I asked this teacher, you no know, cuz it seemed to me from my own <clears throat> reflection that that any kind of spiritual training would be suspect if it you know it was sort of like okay life is difficult so now i'm going to ask you to do the spiritual these spiritual practices and by the way they're going to be difficult and as you go along with those practices that will be difficult and then somewhere if you're lucky You'll get this reward at the end of the journey. And uh, didn't that that vision of spiritual life or whatever didn't make sense to me? Like, it felt like it had to, you know, that the heart, that the mind was sensing something, intuiting something, and that there's a kind of pleasure if. You don't like that word you could find another word there's a kind of release a kind of peace that the heart connects senses intuits and that's it kind of creates the natural feedback mechanism for the awakening the releasing process one another a different teacher Talks about it as a kind of gravitational pull. And the Buddha himself, you know, he said that this practice has the flavor of release, the flavor of freedom, not just at the end, but in the beginning, the middle, and the end. Of course, it isn't even the Buddha's path. It's a natural letting go of what is unnecessary and unneeded. You know, we can get quite frightened when we hear a talk, you know, or maybe not necessarily hearing a talk, but seeing a title about letting go. Because there's a lot of our the mind's conditioning to say, well, I don't want to let go. I worked hard to get this, to have that. And now you're asking me to let go. So it's in it, in, in the end, of course, it isn't even that you or I let go. We're really just contemplating the nature of suffering, or you could say it this way, the nature of happiness. And in paying attention and being interested in it, there's a refinement of understanding what is happiness, what is suffering, and what is the releasing of suffering. And that contemplation, that interest not theoretically, intellectually, but you know we have this heart mind right here, the experience of we're like where is the experience when we feel burdened in life, oppressed, things are difficult, confused, or whatever it might be, where is that experience? You know we say, "Well, it's here. It's here and now, I feel it here, in my body even, we say, or in my heart. So this is our working ground, this is our training ground right here, this experience that's being known. And we're attuning, because it's relevant, we're attuning to the issue at hand, which is, there is suffering. And there is releasing of that suffering. And there's the building up of stress. And there's the releasing of stress. And so it isn't so much that once and for all I'm going to get in charge of this whole mess. We're taking the role of a, a student of our heart where there is suffering and there is release. And an important teacher of ours says there's a particular flavor to that letting go, to that releasing, that's really helpful to attune to. That flavor of peace or that flavor of release or that flavor of freedom. Because otherwise we'll presume that it's more about acquisition, you know, that I'm going to get something, peace, freedom, and then I'm going to put it in my treasure box, keep anybody from taking it from me. Some of you know Thich Nhat Hanh, this wonderful Vietnamese monk and teacher who died, uh, I think, February, just eight months ago or so. He said, there's no way to peace, peace is the way. And one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, a related statement, when we understand that liberation is not about getting anything, it's about letting go, that changes how we're doing our practice. That changes how we do our practice. And we could just broaden that, that changes how we do our life, how we live. Like even when we're having a busy day, a difficult day, and we can have this idea of attainment, like I just need to get to the end of this and get home, and get you know get in bed or get my favorite drink or, and uh, that's th- there's so many versions of this attainment, this promise that never really delivers. You know, if only I get rid of, if only I have, if only I become. And then, you know, and we call that, you know, the seeking of happiness through sense experience. And um, we don't need to be embarrassed about this or, or humiliated, because this is our conditioning. You know, it's just like even when we're sitting, we adjust. And behind that, just endless little adjustments of the body is, you know, I'm going to find the sweet spot, and then I'm going to be comfortable, and then I won't have to move. Anybody ever find that sweet spot? (laughs) We never find it. And we do that in our relationships, we do that with jobs, we do that even with the opinions we hold and cling to, you know, what's the right way to think about affirmative action? We're talking about that today, you know, just the... There's so many of these complicated, difficult issues. And this ambiguity is so disconcerting to us, because we're not actually interested so much in being skillful, we're interested in once and for all having solid ground, that I can depend on, and feel secure. And, of course, you can see this setup, this worldly approach to happiness, like having a lot of financial security, emotional security, relational security, you know, you're just going to add on to that, an up-to-date cell phone. (laughs) or the battery lasts longer than an hour or two and and then then I'll be prepared then I'll have no reason to be anxious or upset or feel oppressed but we know people who have all those things beautiful bodies beautiful setups and some of them you know are in the news and they don't seem happier than we are than we do. Some seem quite unhappy. I'm not saying that I would prefer difficult circumstances to pleasant circumstances. I'd prefer pleasant circumstances, you know, enough resources, good food, shelter, good group of friends. These are important things. I'm not diminishing that But it leaves us wanting. And we keep going. It's sort of, we keep trying to solve the problem of our heart's uneasiness by doing more of the same. And there comes, hopefully, for all of us, a turning point. Not that we give up on turning the heat up when we're cold or turning the heat down when we're hot and feeding the body when it's hungry and being around friends when we feel lonely. It's not that we give up on those worldly pleasures. It's just that we start to become interested in something else. And in Buddhist terms, this is this, uh, again, no particular way of describing it with language is going to be adequate, but we basically start to be interested in the happiness of letting go or the happiness of non-dependence. Instead of seeking happiness through a dependence on having the circumstances that we find pleasant, we're interested in a happiness that comes from, like in more ordinary terms, we'd say contentment. I was talking to someone today who's doing Narayan's uh, program and the contemplation for the fall, some of you may be in that program, is enough. (laughs) You know, perhaps this is enough. Like this moment right now. We always feel like we have an idea of contentment. Contentment will be when I have or I've get a little further down my to-do list, or finally once and for all get into shape, then. But contentment actually, you know, when we understand that contentment is available, it's a practice, but it's available, like content with the conditions, the circumstances, even the mind states, the way the body is right now. the Dalai Lama, this is a long time ago, um, I think he said, I don't know if it was in a book, I think it was spoken, that, uh this is a paraphrase, that we're often really discontent with what we have, but quite content with our spiritual practice. And he recommended reversing that. <laughs> like, I mean, being discontent with our spiritual practice just means we'd be more interested, like, what the heck's going on with the suffering and the releasing here in the mind, in the heart, in my own experience, and more content with what we have. And that's the corner we turn when we get interested in a spiritual life. Again, it's not that we give up on taking care of the body, taking care of those near and dear, taking care of our homes, It's just that we're starting to be interested in another kind of happiness. Still happiness, and if you don't like that word, it's still the releasing. Like we get a release from suffering when I get what I want. If I'm hungry and I get food, then that unhappiness of hunger is released. There is a temporary release when we get what we want or we get rid of what we don't want. But the, the very nature of this sort of worldly pursuit of happiness is, have we ever found the end of that, those desires? There isn't an end. When we gratify a desire, how long does that gratification last? We always wanted to grow up and then we grew up, you know, or we wanted to have a car and then we got a car, or we wanted to have a partner and then we got a partner. But it doesn't end that that kind of internal hunger for something new, something better, something less. So, this happiness of renunciation, this happiness of contentedness, this happiness of letting go, we find it right when we're contemplating in any little or big way, contemplating how the heart feels burdened. You know, and remember, our heart feels burdened even when there are really good circumstances, you know, when we get excited. If we really look at the experience, like, oh, something good is happening, there's often a grip in our heart, even in those so-called nice times. I don't want this to end, this is so great, I want it to last forever, I want it to be even bigger, better, right? We're on vacation, thinking about our next vacation, or even, you know, this is so common in Buddhist circles, you know, we finally get on a beautiful retreat and we're there. Oh, I gotta do this more. We're not really there. We're in and we're in the thought and attached to the thought of doing more of what we're doing right now. And the interesting thing about contemplating like all day long, not just I'm not talking about when you're meditating but that's a good time too. But contemplating all day long the actual experience of the heart releasing. Whatever grip, doesn't matter. Any grip that is there in the heart is worthy of contemplating until the heart, until there's a realization or a recognition of the releasing. And like I mentioned a while back, we don't actually do the releasing, the putting down. Like some problem in your life appears, you're walking down the street or you're doing whatever you're doing and you remember this problem and the mind, in a sense, takes the bait and you start to spin and think about it and you can feel the grip. Like the mind is attached to figuring this out, resolving this, making this go away or making this come to be, depending on the particular thing that has the mind and the grip. And then at some point, if we've been cultivating this natural capacity to be aware, and when we say being aware or mindfully aware, we mean that there's an awareness of what the mind is doing, an awareness of what the mind is knowing. So if I'm in the bubble or spinning in the grip of some drama, then if there's some practice momentum, then at some point it's likely that there will be some <clears throat> awareness. It's not even right to say, I decided to be mindfully aware of being neurotic. No, the awareness just re-emerges because it's also a habit in the mind now because we've been practicing. So mindfulness will return, that mindful awareness, and there will be that simple recognition Oh, the mind is like this now it's worrying it's planning it's strategizing it's doing whatever it's doing it's like this it feels like this this is an experience being known mindfulness isn't going to judge what it's like a mirror it just reflects so if the mind's doing something neurotic then that mirror of a of wisdom and awareness it's just going to reflect that oh yeah the mind's doing something neurotic and it's tight and if there's if the next appearance in the mind is the savior who's going to make myself let go of it that would that's just the next grip in the heart you know god darn it i'm a buddhist <laughs> i'm not supposed to be neurotically spinning like this with my problems I'm gonna get rid of this, right? That's just another grip. So the practice isn't to make neurotic stuff go away. The practice is always to discern dukkha and its release. So when there's dukkha, wisdom and awareness discerns, oh, this is dukkha. This is suffering. Maybe in a mild form, maybe in an intense form. But see, this, if you haven't been practicing, you won't know how incredibly useful it is to be able to recognize the mind suffering without reflexively either wanting to fix it or wanting to pretend it isn't the way it is, you know, like put your head in the sand or turn away. It's a real important place in practice when we can see the mind acting out and uh, there isn't this reflex to sort of crush it or put the brakes on. Oh, sometimes it's like this, this uh, shame cycle, let's say. Sometimes shame is like this, sometimes grandiosity is like this, sometimes the oh poor me, Tape plays and it's like this. And, uh, and then in that, we're doing the contemplation the Buddha recommends. We're contemplating the reality of dukkha, that stress or that heart being squeezed. And then at some point, if there's just that clear, non judging, patient, kind presence, there will be a moment where whatever was bound up in the mind, heart, body is no longer bound up. And then there will be a realization, oh, this is the release. I mean, just think about how many little and big ways our mind, heart, body has been bound up in our lives. I mean, tens of thousands of times, right? I mean, probably today does, I mean, specific little vortexes of you know, being all bound up, you know, probably dozens and dozens of times today at least. Where has all that gone? There's been literally births, birthing of those dramas, self-centered dramas, and the cessation, the releasing of all that drama. What's been missing mostly is that clear, non-judging, discerning, Presence that clearly sees how it is that the drama arises and how the heart, body, mind gets entangled, feels oppressed, and bound up with the drama, and how that unbinding, releasing happens. The one thing that has been missing is interest, which is really the most, I think ironic, paradoxical thing in the universe is that we are suffering beings and we have been mostly uninterested in looking directly at it. We look at other people suffering quite a bit and have all kinds of opinions about it, especially our partners. <laughs> Plenty of advice we like to give or you become a Buddhist teacher and talk about it. Well, actually, there's advantages to being a a Dharma teacher because it becomes humiliating when we're not, when I'm not looking at my own stuff because, you know, I'm talking about it all the time. (laughs) And so it's like, you know, preparing for the talk this afternoon. It just becomes, oh, I guess I could. Like I was uh, meditating this morning really early and... uh, I had the thought, well, oh, I should go get my notes. And then it occurred to me, because it was early and I was still in bed and I just sat up and I thought, uh, well, you know, my mind is right here. <laughs> you know, the moments of being that suffering human being, I mean, not in terrible ways, but just in those ordinary ways, the mind gets gripped about oh, all the things I got to do today. You know, I got to clean the toilet before I leave. I was just teaching out at... Insight Meditation Society for the last month and, you know, get the place all together because being a Buddhist, I don't want to leave the cabin I was staying in messy so that the staff person who has to clean it thinks, oh, what's wrong with him? (laughs) (laughs) You know, even something like that, needing to, wanting to impress a staff person, like I'm one of those people who leaves. I had a teacher once, And he was interviewed by a journalist, and the journalist asked, like, you know, what distinguishes people who are students of yours, or something? He asked a question like that, he says, and this teacher had this great answer, he said, my students are the kind of people that, when they use a public restroom, they leave it cleaner than they found it. (laughs) Well, that's a pretty nice answer to that question. But that can just become another oppressive thing, you know, like, oh yeah, I got to Because it's just another way, like, I need to be seen in this way. And then immediately I'm vulnerable to not being seen in this way. And then we need to remind people to see us the way we want to be seen. Did you notice that I, (laughs) how clean the toilet was? Or something like that. I mean, there's literally an infinite number of ways to cling, to grip including in all of our spiritual practices, right? We can get identified with all of our spiritual forms and teachings and practices, insights even. We turn them into something, and then the heart clings to them as if they're going to make us safe, as if they're going to give somebody something that's dependable, And it's actually in the wrong direction. You know, any authentic spiritual path is about letting go. Now, of course, different teachers and spiritual traditions will talk about that letting go in different ways, but it isn't about acquiring something, right? Because that would be self-centered. And it's such a burden to hold it all together. And the neat thing about letting go as like a way of framing our spiritual practices, when might there be a moment where letting go wouldn't be appropriate? Or putting it down? Putting down what can be put down. It doesn't, a lot of people will initially confuse that, those kind of words with us, like imagining its passivity. I'm not going to do anything then. I put it all down, so I'm that heap of flesh over there <laughs> waiting, waiting for something to happen. And then I'll put that down. Because we're even putting down ideas of passivity. Or that's too much. right? So it, it actually, working with that intuition of putting down and again, it's not so much you or me putting it down as discerning what's extra, discerning any kind of grip or entanglement, because embedded in any kind of grip or entanglement is the sort of information of the release. But what, what is required is the it needs to be illuminated with awareness. And you can just try this. This is something you can directly check out for yourselves. When you have the wherewithal that your heart, mind, body, whatever is gripped, then to get interested in that grip, hold it with no agenda except to be intimate, to be present with it. Infinitely patient, not afraid because it's often unpleasant, as you know. And see what happens. If nothing else, like when we open in that way, if nothing else, we've released all the eff- effort required to ignore it or to project something on it that basically gives us permission not to look at it or connect with it. And the reality is it's here and now, like when we're hurting feeling a little sad, feeling a little anxious, feeling a little needy, or whatever the particular flavor of it is, it's here and now. So then the question is, am I going to practice disconnection, because that's a lot of work, to practice being oblivious, unaware of what I'm feeling, what's happening now, or am I going to practice? It's not even like, I'm going to try to be connected. It's more the letting go of habits of disconnection. Like, you know, most of us have the capacity to feel the buttocks on the chair or the cushion right now, that ordinary physical sense experience, right? So we might say, and we might even, a teacher might even language it, bring your awareness to the seat Making contact with the chair or the cushion. But it doesn't, it isn't really about that so much as it is about removing, dropping, releasing whatever is keeping the mind from that experience. That experience of the seat against the chair or cushion is here and now. So any sort of burden in our heart, tightness, squeeze, heaviness, numbness, worminess—you know, whatever. This is what I meant earlier when I I mentioned uh, a teacher of mine just used this uh, simile of a of a gravitational pull. It's like when we. Keep our spiritual practice as simple of, as simple as dukkha and its release, stress and its release, entanglement, squeeze and release. And our job as a practitioner is just to be interested and to learn how to sustain that interest. Then the letting go is unnatural happening the Buddha has many wonderful similes like rain falling on the side of a mountain and how it nobody has to dominate and control and you know be in the operations room to get that water down and eventually back into the ocean there are it just is a, a natural process that happens Ajahn Chah, some of you know, very well known teacher in our tradition, this early Buddhist tradition, a Thai monk in the Thai forest tradition. He died in the nineties, but trained a lot of our senior teachers. He, one of his famous little teachings, he said, peace within ourselves, peace within oneself is to be found in the same place as agitation and suffering. This is not where we want to look. <laughs> you know, we tend to have idealistic notions in our spiritual practice, and uh, for me, when I first encountered uh, the Buddhist teachings back in the early '80s, this was so. This made it so trustworthy to me, just in sobering just how the teachings are really grounded in the experience of suffering. Like you want release, spiritual freedom, or whatever you want to call it, then start cultivating a way of being with your own a- actual suffering that has a lot of integrity, actual interest. Cultivate a mind that can be interested in dukkha. Can you do that? You know, that's that's kind of how I heard the teachings. Am I willing? cultivate a heart or mind that can actually authentically be curious about dukkha because that's where you find release. It's not so much that we've gained some spiritual attainment as we engaged a natural process that naturally, even impersonally, allowed the grip the entanglements to disentangle you know one of the potent similes i find at least from the buddhist teachings um, the buddha is just talking about you know using some similes to describe the, the this path of practice this training and he gave three in this particular talk a hen incubating eggs an axe handle and uh, a boat, you know, with a lot of riggings on it. And so the, the simile of the hen is, there might be a mother hen and they might really want those eggs to hatch, but really wanting the eggs to hatch isn't the cause for the eggs to hatch, right? There are actual supporting causes, like sitting on the eggs, keeping them at a temperature, but the strong desire... Like, let's convert the simulate to our own experience. This, the deep and sincere desire to be free of suffering isn't actually the cause for the release of suffering. There is a lawful cause, supporting causes for freedom, for release. But really, really wanting to be free isn't the cause for release it's the cause for feeling like you really, really want to be free, which is <laughs> sounds kind of tight to me, right? And then the second simile of the axe handle, uh, it's a little bit more nuanced, but the Buddha in this simile is saying, <clears throat> if you look at that, you use that hammer or axe or whatever kind of tool that you want to use for the simile, if you use it every day, and every day you check to see how much it's worn down, you probably can't tell, well, yeah, it's a lot more worn down today than it was yesterday, because it doesn't wear down that fast. But, you know, after 10 or whatever, 20 years of continual use, will you know that this axe handle has worn down? Yeah. It won't be, like, subtle. It will be very clear, that's a worn-down handle, but that doesn't mean you can tell day by day something's happening. So this is another simile he uses for our practice. Yeah, and they, there's a famous little story with the Dalai Lama again where somebody asked <clears throat> about like, are you noticing that your practice is getting deeper or something like that? Probably a journalist. And he said, well, no, not day to day. But, you know, 5, 10, 15. Yeah, I could see real... I can see something has changed. I'm not that person that I was 10 years ago. When difficulty happens, for example, how the mind relates to it, what the mind does with that difficulty, it's not the same. There's just a lot more space or a lot more resilience, a lot more balance or equanimity. Oh, something's changing, but not day by day. And then the last, which is the one I really wanted to, bring up for this talk tonight is these rotting sails and the idea is a boat that's been fishing boat let's say and then during the uh, difficult weather season you know it gets pulled up into dry dock because it's too stormy to fish and it's there in the sun and in the rain and in the humidity and in the wind and all the sails and riggings begin to rot. Now it's not a glorious spiritual metaphor you know, rotting, the rotting riggings of a fishing boat or whatever. But that's the image the Buddha used, like how does the mind shed, how does the mind release? Well, that's a very organic, natural process. And what does it require? Exposure. Exposure to the elements. And that really is the nature of our mindful awareness practice. Right, This sort of balanced, stable, non-judging, present moment awareness. It's like the elements. And all of the habits of clinging, all of the flavors of fear and aversion, all the flavors of lust and greed, all the flavors of disconnection and distraction and denial. These are the three unwholesome roots. Some of you know these, you know, aversion, greed, delusion kind of in Buddhist tradition those three unwholesome roots are the animating or the expressive qualities of wrong view, self-centered view right, greed, hatred and delusion and uh, just that exposure like you want to be free of greed, hatred and delusion then we contemplate (laughs) <laughs> with wisdom awareness, the activity of greed, hatred, and delusion, and it, it the habit, the habits wear out through non-identification. A really, uh, another <laughs> fun little simile the Buddha used. I think it's sometimes referred to in the text as forty cartloads of fuel, or forty cartloads of timber, something like that. And this is, again, just a rough paraphrase, but the Buddha says something like, uh, you know, he asks his students a question, say there's a big bonfire, and periodically the person dumps in 40 cartloads of dung, dried dung and branches and, you know, other kinds of fuel, what's going to (laughs) happen? And his students, not being idiots, said, well, that bonfire is going to blaze, right? Because periodically somebody's dumping in a lot of fuel and then the buddha says and what if periodically nobody (laughs) dumps fuel into the fire and then those smart practitioners said well that bonfire is going to go out and some of you know already that this uh, simile of a fire going out is the Basic simile for awakening. Again, not your typical spiritual metaphor of fire going out. That's actually what the word nibbana or nirvana means. Something's getting cool, something's going out. The flames, the agitated, entangling flames of greed, hatred and delusion, all those subtle and not so subtle tendencies... grip i mean even like you may want the talk to end so you can go home let's say you had a busy day you're tired or this talk isn't up your alley or whatever but the the identification the grip of not wanting to be here when you're here you see it's like it's dysfunctional it's like not adding anything to your well-being either you should leave right or we should be okay with the unpleasantness of being here. But being here and actively not wanting to be here, or being married and actively not wanting to be married, or being in a job, and or whatever it is, that's the suffering that can be released. And the contemplation is simply to develop this intuition, this wisdom intuition that, recognizes what's extra, what's unnecessary and keeping that in mind because it's actually the issue at hand. It's actually what the heart is naturally interested in. What is the heart heart holding to, attached to, identified with, grasping in ways that isn't contributing to my well-being or anybody's well-being? Can we keep it in mind? And if I keep it in mind, in this balanced way, does letting go, does releasing happen? And the more we have moments of seeing that non-judging, patient, non-controlling awareness and the release that follows, then a kind of confidence begins to build. It's a natural feedback loop. You know, remember the Buddha's basic premise from his own awakening is what's happening here, internally, externally, anywhere, what's happening is nature. These interdependent natural processes. It's all nature. And now I know for us, it seems like, no, no, yeah, it's nature, I get that. But there's then me somewhere (laughs) located that somehow strangely is a part from these interdependent natural systems that are empty of any particular location, right? Because natural processes, like when fall turns into winter, that doesn't have like a location, that natural process of the seasonal change, right? Or you can think of any natural process. It doesn't have a center to it. Still, it's real. It happens. Just like a human being, but we tend to insert or project a sense of a somebody that sits. And so when the Buddha shares this understanding that arose in his own practice, he had to explain, well, when I suffer, it sure feels like there's a me who's suffering. And when that suffering goes away, it really feels like there's a me who's relieved. So the Buddha, like part of his teachings, is mapping out how suffering appears to be personal, but it's just a natural process that's being misunderstood or not seen clearly. And awakening is also a natural process. What keeps suffering, what in Buddhism we call samsara, what keeps that in motion doing the same thing, getting the same results, is the not seeing the breadth and depth of what's happening in the moment. So staying on the surface, staying with the projections that the mind is projecting, staying within the limitations of our current understanding, that keeps the patterns that are oppressing us in motion. And the resolution to that is to develop an awareness that's balanced, clear and stable and continuous. And that's the cause for the, the whole awakening process. In one place, he describes, interestingly, the, the proximate, the first cause for that whole awakening is dukkha, right? Is seeing the nature of dukkha, of suffering. Letting it come right front and center. Oh, not theoretically, but actually, it's like being aware of my subjective experience as a human being. Oh, there's suffering, there's tightness. There's a heaviness in the heart. There's a not wanting to be here now, or wanting things to be different, and that hurts. So just that honest acknowledgement. And then, interestingly, the next... that arises with that honest connection with dukkha, with suffering is faith. Oh. Because when we have an honest opening what arises in the mind is oh maybe this is the way. Because one of the things we all have is like we're doing the same thing, getting the same results. We would do something differently but we just don't know what that would be. So we keep doing the same thing and getting the same results so when we take a, a good look honest look not looking at suffering to make it go away looking at suffering because it's relevant then all of a sudden some confidence arises in the heart oh this is something i haven't really done with this much integrity before maybe this is the way And then some joy, that's the next thing he points out, joy begins to arise. And a lot of the other wholesome factors come into being, including deeper tranquility. And it simply begins with this turning and respecting of the way the heart is, our heart, not theoretically, but actually. You know a good place to observe this? is uh, when you get up in the morning, like whether you get up with an alarm clock or however, but before you get out of bed, you know that <laughs> we get a little bit, you know, hopefully if you get a halfway decent night's sleep, you get a little oblivion in your sleep, and then the alarm rings or whatever, it's time to get up, and it's like everything else comes back online, and then just notice... The quality of the mind and heart, in those moments. I mean, it might even be the subtle oppression of knowing you have to brush your teeth, or that you have to pee, or whatever it might be. I got to make my coffee, or or the, or bigger. Like I got to do this today, or or just another day, or. But it it can be a window. Just because sometimes, depending on the timing of how we wake up, there's a. A little bit of that oblivion of having dropped, and then it's sort of picking up the heavy burden of being me, putting that heavy backpack back on. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This is familiar. And it's, that's a good time to bring a different view. Like, well, this is interesting. That, that actual interest. This is interesting and not to be afraid of the initial unpleasantness of it, because we need that curiosity like, is this oppressiveness what it appears to be? That's kind of the telltale sign of somebody who's done a lot of practice is, and I'll I'll open it up for discussion in just a few moments, uh, because this may correspond to your experience, at least in moments, instead of feeling oppressed by difficulty, Somebody who's done a lot of practice or just has a lot of spiritual maturity, they're interested. Well, that's interesting. My heart's really hurting. This feels really hard. Oh, this is interesting. Like, why is this experience that I'm relating to, why is this so hard? Is there another way to be with this, to open to this that could be okay? And part of that curiosity is like when we, it's not going away, like we're, I'm, hey, I'm being aware of you, <laughs> the Buddha said you'll go away, so it's like, uh, well, maybe the awareness isn't patient enough, maybe there's a subtle agenda with the awareness, like if I look at you, you'll go away, <laughs> so we have to relax as if it's never going to go away. We're not looking at dukkha to make it go away. That's more of what gets us in that suffering state. We're opening to dukkha because it's here and now. It's the nature of our experience, the nature of our life right now. This is how it is. And this is really the ground of just wholesome relationships where we meet each other in this more authentic way. And it doesn't deny joy and pleasure. It's just the beginning of a more sober and liberated life because we are beginning to release the need to be in denial and the need to be deluded, to basically be lying to ourselves and to each other. And I want to end by just saying that Maybe I'll read from uh, Gil Franstel's article about Nibbana because it's, it can be easy to misinterpret what I've just said recently. Oh, so the culmination of spiritual life is this like, yeah, we're all suffering, but at least we know it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and th- that alone I think would actually be a good step, you know, just that honest acknowledgement. But we want to keep open, you know, our spiritual ancestors, some of our contemporary teachers, our Dharma friends, people who have a sincere practice who've been at it for a while. They'll report from their life, their practice. Like I mentioned, you know, the the Dalai Lama said, Oh, no, no, there's there's been a real change. This heart is not as burdened. There's a lightness of freedom... A space that wasn't there before. And there's a confidence that comes from that. So let me just read this. This is an article that was in Tricycle Magazine by Gil Fronstal, a wonderful Dharma teacher. And he's also a wonderful Buddhist scholar. So it's a wonderful combination of his depth of practice as a meditator and his uh, scholarly work and it's called Nibbana. It's just a short article. He writes at the end of this short article, Experiencing Nibbana is like taking a dip in a refreshing pond. A quick dip, and we're slightly refreshed. With a long soak, we are thoroughly refreshed. Even the first brief dip into Nibbana is a powerful lesson in the possibility of a great happiness, freedom, peace, a peace not dependent on the conditions of the world. As long as someone believes happiness can only be found through the right conditions, it makes sense to cling to those conditions, even when knowing full well that all conditioned phenomena are subject to change. But when there is a direct visceral experience of an alternative, the enchantment that fuels this clinging lessens dramatically. So I wanted to end there, just so we have an open mind where this path of letting go leads. Yeah, like a free fall. <laughs> a free fall, but we don't have to worry about hitting anything. <laughs> so I'll leave it there. It's so nice to be with everybody tonight. And thank you, Nicholas, and. All the volunteers that made it possible. Hope to see you all again someday. Good night, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit DharmaSed.org slash donate.